Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions, an accidental company. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This one for Friday, April 20th, 2018. This will be Season 2, Episode number 16, the playoff edition of the Bobcast. Now, I can't speak for all you guys, but um, I don't know. Playoffs have been kind of eh so far, haven't they? I mean, we've had two sweeps, although I got I to gotta say, Vegas and L.A., that was a good four-game sweep. I mean, that was pretty fierce competition. Um, the Vegas story continues to be one of the best in the National Hockey League, or the worst, I guess, if you're not in Vegas. Um, but that was pretty good hockey for a sweep. Now, that said, as I speak to you at this moment, we've got five series sitting at 3-1. Only Washington and Columbus is tied 2-2. And, and I guess while some of the individual games have been really good, I don't know. Um, like, I thought Philly-Pittsburgh would be really good. And, like, every game seems like it's a blowout, even the one Philly won was lopsided. So I've never really had that crazy Bob Cole, everything is happening, sort of your hair is on fire feeling in the first round that uh, that we so often get. So I don't know, maybe in this playoff format, um, the second round is going to be the potential money round. And uh, because unless there are some incredible comebacks, you know, we, we are maybe staring down the, the barrel of Boston, Tampa Bay. Uh, those were really the two best teams in the East over the course of the regular season. So looking at Nashville, Winnipeg, and those to a large degree, much of the season were two of the best teams in the West, although folks in Vegas are going to suggest otherwise, and rightfully so. And and we're going to have probably Pittsburgh against either Washington or Columbus, which could be a really good second-round series. So I don't know. Um, just something weird. The playoffs just don't seem quite the same. Maybe it's just me. Or, you know, maybe everything is a little bit clouded um, by the, the terrible tragedy that occurred with the, the humble Broncos bus crash. And it was exactly two weeks ago today that happened. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it because I'm really not sure what else I or anybody else can say that hasn't already been said. I mean, it's so very, very sad. It's such a massive and, and tragic loss of life and, and so many young lives. And it obviously hits us all so hard in Canada and the hockey community because, well, there isn't anybody who, who can't put themselves in the position of those that are directly affected by it. I mean, it could be our kids. It could be our team, our town. And even though it's not, it's it's hard not to be overwhelmed by the, the empathy and the, the sadness of it all. But... Um, and I guess the grieving process and the healing process is ongoing and we're all going to try to find some good in, in so much bad. And and to that end, I will say this, it never ceases to amaze me. Whenever the worst in our world offers up something, it inevitably results in, in what I think is, is the best. And I guess whatever the nature of the tragedy, and it, it could be the pure evil in a terrorist attack or a school shooting, we've had way too many of those lately, um, or the, you know, the random and inexplicable nature of, of some sort of natural disaster like a hurricane or an earthquake or, in this case, a bus crash with massive uh, casualties, there's always so much darkness to start, and understandably so, um, but as you go through the process, and it's not an easy one, you, you also see all this goodness and light in so many people who rally around it. And you, you get these incredible stories of strength and compassion. And I, I would only say this, the, the only way for me or anybody else to honor those who lost their lives or their loved ones is to try and be compassionate, but also just Try to live your best life and share and care and do what you can for those folks and try to make sense of something that seems so utterly senseless. So in that vein, um, you know, maybe we should all try to do something specific 
to honor the humble victims and um, the, the 16 who died. But not only them, but all all of their families and friends and those who were deeply affected and, and are still alive. Now, Logan Boulay was one of the Broncos who died in that crash, a 21-year-old defenseman. And, and you may have heard his story by now. Um, a few weeks before the crash, I believe it was on his right on his 21st birthday, which was the first day that he was eligible to do so. He signed his organ donor permission card. And um, after the crash, uh, Logan was kept on life support and um, his organs were used to apparently save as many as six other lives. And and that's kind of what I mean about the worst things in our world, bringing out the best things in our world in, in humanity. I mean, there's... You know, a 21-year-old kid loses his life, and yet six other people may live their lives because of of what he did, the the caring and sharing that he took when he was alive and healthy on his 21st birthday, and to have the maturity and the foresight to to do something like that. Um, so I can tell you, I've, I've been an organ donor now for a lot of years. Um, I'm not sure when I did it, five, ten years ago, I don't even remember. It's right there on the back of my Ontario health card. Um, so if you're so inclined, I would I would simply suggest that a really great way to honor the memory of Logan Boulay and really everybody associated with the Humboldt tragedy is to go online in your area, wherever you live, and, and try to locate the forms or the method necessary um, to become an, an organ donor. Uh, I know in Ontario, you can consent to be an organ donor at age 16, uh, as soon as you get your driver's license, basically. And and the forms are easily obtainable online. And um, once you get the forms filled out, you can go into any Service Ontario outlet um, and, and submit that. And then they just send you a revised health card that shows that you are, in fact, um, an organ donor. So anyways, it's it's just a thought. Um, everybody has their own way to show some sort of support. I know we all want to show that support. Um, it can be just as simple as putting those hockey sticks out on the porch with the light on, you know, sticks out for Humboldt, uh, the movement that went kind of viral. Uh, that's a very nice gesture. And I can tell you just on my own street here in uh, Brooklyn, which is North Whitby, uh, you drive up and down the streets in the days and weeks following the, the bus crash and, just about every porch has got hockey sticks out on it. So um, it, it's great to see that level of support um, for the, the good folks in Humboldt. The other thing you could do is you can go to iTunes or I, I'm sure Universal Music Canada or even tsn.ca and and you can um, buy Tom Cochran's touching rendition of Big League. Now, I don't know if you saw it or not, but um, Tom Cochran was kind enough to come into our TSN studios and sing an acoustic version of Big League where he re- rewrites some of the, the lyrics to, um, to reflect specifically uh, f- for, for those uh, in Humboldt. And uh, anyways, that's, that's a great cause, and uh, it's a great addition or rendition of the song. It's very haunting. And uh, anyways, just that's a little something you can do. And, and whatever you, uh, you choose to do, um, I know all of us will just try to follow the lead and try to be humble and strong. We've got some listener feedback uh, this edition of the Bobcast, and it actually has to, it's related um, to the humble tragedy. Uh, this comes from Peter Knight. Hi, Bob. I love and respect your work. Like most people, I am heartsick at the tragedy that has happened in Humboldt. That said, I'm also surprised when people say that it's unprecedented and when you say it's unimaginable. Unfortunately, both of those statements are wrong, as there is precedent, and for those who were involved, it is still very real and imaginable. On June 11, 1978, 12 boys and a junior leader died at Lake Temiskaming in a canoe accident. There were only about 25 people even on the trip. Unlike with Humboldt, the survivors of the lake trip spent the night with around half the bodies on a very small outcrop of level ground on the banks of the lake. Although it's not hockey, it is in fact a very similar tragedy to the one in Humboldt. Author James Raffin wrote a book about the trip called Deep Waters, Courage, Character in the Lake Temiskaming Lake Canoe Tragedy. Uh, the survivors still get together every June 11th at St. Martin's in the Field Church in Toronto, where there is a plaque honoring those who were lost. Although our numbers are declining, 
the tragedy definitely has kept the small community together. If you want to know how this will look in the rearview mirror 40, nows from now, 40 years from now, you can talk to those survivors. This accident in Humboldt is terrible and grievous, but it's not without precedent and it's not unimaginable either. I mean, no disrespect to the current tragedy. I just wanted to let you know and to set the record straight. Thanks very much, Peter Knight. Uh, duly noted, Peter, uh, absolutely. And we're very sorry for your loss and it does reinforce that uh, tragedy knows no bounds in terms of sports or age or any of those things. And um, everybody's got uh, some very hard crosses to bear. All right, then let's uh, shift gears a little bit here. And uh, before we get into your hockey questions this week and what's going on in the NHL, I have been asked by the Movember Foundation to take a few minutes to talk about men's health issues. Now, if you're not familiar with the Movember Foundation, hit hit it into the Google machine, go check it out. It's a fantastic website that deals with a whole host of issues related to men's health and uh, all about, you know, physical health, emotional health, mental health. And there's all sorts of really good stuff there about maintaining a dialogue and uh, men helping men and women helping men and men helping women and just basically everybody helping everybody to look out for their best uh, interests specifically as it relates to a lot of health issues. So in, in any event, the reason the Movember Foundation reached out to me now was they wanted me to talk a little bit about testicular cancer. Now, if you're a fan of the Bobcast, you know that this is a subject near and dear to our hearts. Um, in one of the very early earliest episodes of the Bobcast, I guess I'm, I'm going to say it was November of 2016, we did a whole segment on the importance of knowing thy nuts rubbing your nuts, so to speak, and checking out the old nutsack to make sure that there were no irregularities. And it was a really fun way to broach, uh, you know, a very serious subject. Now, Bobcast listeners, the faithful ones, will also remember that there was a Bobcast listener by the name of Will Joyce who listened to that episode in November of 2016 and some months later decided to check himself out. Now, he did find a lump on his testicle and he had it checked out. And it was testicular cancer. He had to have surgery, had his uh, testicle removed, radiation, chemo, the whole nine yards. And um, he was given a clean bill of health after that. Now, in November of 2017, in another Bobcast episode, um, we told Will's story in great detail. Because um, we were, A, we're very proud of it. And B, we were very happy for Will. And, and Will communicated some, some very great detailed letters to us about his story. Well, here we are now in April of 2018, and who turns out to be something of an official spokesman for the Movember Foundation and the Know Thy Nuts campaign? Well, it's none other than Will Joyce himself. Now, what I didn't realize is that April, the month of April, is Testicular Cancer Awareness Month. Um, but when Cassie from the Movember Foundation contacted me and said, hey, do you think you could help in promoting that fact? Well, no doubt we're going to help out. So... Here's, here's what you need to know about the whole thing on testicular cancer. And this is a great public service, and uh, all you men out there, especially young men, pay attention. Testicular cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst young guys, ages 15 to 39 in Canada. I know a lot of our Bobcast listeners are ages 15 to 39, so listen up. Uh, early detection is the absolute key, and Will Joyce will be the first to tell you this. 95% of the men diagnosed will survive, but 1 in 20 men won't make it. Now, they say to check regularly so that you know what's normal for you. That means even if you're not checking for testicular cancer, it's always good to get a baseline of what your nuts feel like, so to speak. Uh, if something hurts or doesn't feel right, go right to the doctor. Now, I can tell you this, testicular cancer progresses fast. That's why early detection is the key. And often the surgical removal of the testicle takes place within a week or two of the diagnosis to prevent the spread of the disease. And of course, Phil Kessel is another guy who had testicular cancer and had it remedied very quickly. And I don't have to tell you what a hero Phil is, um, both on and off the ice. Um, as we mentioned, Will Joyce is a real-life example of, of somebody who went through this very process. So very quickly, just to remind you, here's how you check your nuts. The shower is a good place to feel around down there. Take one nut at a time and rub it between your thumb and forefinger. 
repeat the same thing with the other nut. Do this every month or so to know what feels normal. If anything hurts or doesn't feel right, go see your doctor. Simple as that. So that's uh, that's for our friends at the Movember Foundation, and we're happy to help out because uh, if we can just get one person um, to do that and to avoid having to deal with... Uh, Finding out too late that you've got testicular cancer is great. And we know that one person by name. His name is Will Joyce. So congrats to Will. And I was actually laughing because um, the Toronto Sun wrote a story about Will. And he was telling his story. And I'm sure he gave them all the details. But the reporter for the Toronto Sun just kind of glossed over where where Will heard about uh, checking your uh, checking your nuts. And uh, he, he told them it was the Bobcast. But they, they called it a talk show. So in the Toronto Sun, in the story about Will... It says uh, Will was urged to check his uh, testicles on a talk show. So I'm now the host of a talk show. Pretty proud of that. I do. I did in my day look like Jay Leno. So that's good. Okay. So you know what? Uh, Enough of all that stuff. Um, Let's do that hockey thing. The NHL draft lottery is coming up in a week here, a week this Saturday. That would be Saturday, April 28th. So just for the hell of it. Since uh, by the time we do the next Bobcast, the lottery will be over. We will know the order of selection for the 2018 NHL draft. Let's go to tankathon.ca and let's do the official uh, one week before the draft lottery mock lottery picks on Tankathon. So here we are. Oh, look at this. It says right on it. This is cool Um, on Tankathon. it's It's got a countdown clock. So right now it says NHL draft lottery, eight days, six hours, 13 minutes, 22, 21 seconds, 20 seconds. That's kind of cool. That's, uh, yeah, eight days, six hours, 13 minutes. All right. Um, I should go the order of selection right now at the top end. Buffalo, Ottawa, Arizona, Montreal, Detroit, Vancouver, Chicago, the Rangers, Edmonton, and the Islanders. That's your top 10. Carolina at 11. Calgary would have the 12th best odds, but the New York Islanders own that pick. And guess what? It's not lottery protected. Uh, And Dallas at 13. St. Louis at 14, but they don't own that pick. It belongs to the Philadelphia Flyers. And I believe that is lottery protected. Um... Top 10 protected anyways. And Florida at 15. So here we go. Now we're now down to 8 hours, 6 hour, 8 days, 6 hours, 12 minutes, 30 seconds. And here we go. Simulate the lottery. Push the button. And boom, 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 boom. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I got good news and I got bad news. And the bad news is for Buffalo, who drops three spots. Ottawa, who drops three spots, and Montreal, who drops two spots. Because the winner of the mock draft lottery, uh, eight days, six hours, 12 minutes out, Chicago Blackhawks moved up six spots. They get the number one overall pick. Congrats to Stan Bowman and Joel Quenville. Boy, oh boy. Uh, Rasmus Dahlin looking pretty good on that Chicago blue line. Uh, there's your successor to Duncan Keith. The Arizona Coyotes move up one spot to number two. Uh, interesting. They'll have that decision to make on uh, Svechnikov, Kachuk, or Zadina. We've talked about that. We won't do that again, but that's uh, the choice. And here's the uh, the kicker. Uh, the good old Edmonton Oilers, who have some draft lottery luck in their veins, also moved up six points on this one so it's chicago one arizona two edmonton three buffalo four ottawa five montreal six detroit seven vancouver eight the rangers nine and then it spins out after that so that's fascinating it's fun go play tankathon.com sorry not .ca tankathon.com they've got it for the nba the nhl the nfl major league baseball knock yourself out on the last edition of the Bobcast, I was uh, complaining and agonizing over my uh, NHL awards ballot. Of course, it was all filled out before the playoffs began. And boy, that was unbelievably hard. Now, the ballots will be made public after the awards. Um, we're not supposed to uh, give out our ballot in detail ahead of time for obvious reasons. If everybody did it, the, some wiseacre would be able to calculate uh, 
who the likely winners of the awards are, and they want it to be a surprise. Fair enough. Um, but uh, as I said, the ballots will be made public after the awards. I'll give you enough info here that um, you can get a head start on bashing my choices and endlessly mocking me. So for the Hart Trophy, I can tell you that it came down for me. The top two guys on my ballot were Taylor Hall and Nathan McKinnon. Don't tell anyone, but I picked Taylor Hall. Uh, Connor McDavid was on my five-man ballot, which means that a a lot of really good guys got left off my ballot. So sorry about that, and uh, you can bash me for that when it comes out. Um, The Calder was uh, really easy to pick because I think Matthew Barzell was far and away the top rookie this season in the NHL. I don't think too many people would disagree with that. But you know what? McAvoy and Besser were so good and, in my mind, need to be at the high end of this ballot um, in the top three. And and I think you absolutely must have the goal-scoring leader amongst rookies. Kyle Connor of the Winnipeg Jets has got to be on there. So then you get into the really hard choices. Um, I don't know if a lot of people fully realize it, but Yanni Gord um, with with uh, Tampa had a, an amazing year, a really great all-around player who statistically did very, very well. But then you've got Clayton Keller, who's going to be you know, a superstar, in my mind, in the National Hockey League. And um, so you know, one of those guys can't be on the ballot. And um, all I know is I'm probably going to lose some friends in Arizona at some point. Uh, the Norris Trophy's um, interesting. I saw they announced the finalists the other day. The finalists are Drew Doughty, uh, Victor Hedman, and P.K. Subban. Um, I can tell you this, that um, Seth Jones of the Columbus Blue Jackets was fairly high on my ballot. Um, and Roman Yossi also made it onto my ballot. Um, uh, that, that's unbelievable that a team can have two Norris Trophy candidates. And if Ryan Ellis were healthy and Matthias Ekholm had a good year, I'm waiting for the year where the the Norris Trophy balloting is going to include P.K. Subban, Roman Yossi, Ryan Ellis, and Matthias Ekholm, all of them on the, uh, <laughs> the Norris ballot. Uh, Nashville is defenseman strong, that's for sure. I also see that they announced Patrice Bergeron, Sean Couturier, and Anze Kopitar, as the Selkie finalist, hmm, I had Couturier to win it, to be honest. But I also had Florida's Alexander Barkov very high on my ballot, and he did not make the top three. Um, I can tell you that I think the you fill out your ballot, and if you do it properly, there's no regrets because you've spent so much time and effort on it that you think you've got it buttoned down and you, you finally go with what you got. That's not entirely true. After I submitted mine, I thought about it for a day or two, and I went back and looked at it. And in retrospect, I might have made one little mistake on that ballot in terms of the, the guys that I had had ranked four, five, and six. Um, but uh, that might be a mistake that won't make me all that popular in Las Vegas. But that really is the, the funny part. I've mentioned this before, and it underlines the whole ballot being made public thing. My experience, just from talking on the radio or on Twitter about picking this guy or that guy to win an award, is you never take too much flack for who you pick at number one or number two. But where you really get the shit beat out of you by unhappy fans, fan bases, is for who you, who you put at number six. In other words, the guy who's not on your ballot. That's the one that drives people crazy because legitimately there are guys that could be number six on a ballot who do have a claim to maybe win the award. But the real, the reality is that sort of the guys that are one, two, three, four, and five, someone's got to be off the ballot. And um, it's pretty funny at the end because, excuse me, at the end, because they only announced three finalists in for each of the awards and yet we have to pick one, two, three, four, five, and then we have to make public our one, two, three, four, five pick. Maybe the NHL should put one, two, three, four, five as the uh, um, as the finalists. The uh, I, so I'll, I'll only say this: I wish I could just fill out my ballot and go one, two, three, because I find it really hard to separate four, five, six, seven, and eight in many cases. I understand why it needs to be five deep because it helps with tie breaking and, and getting a better sense of, of the award. 
but uh, I'm, I'm, I would like to be a one, two, three guy. Okay, let's move on to question period. Uh, the first one up from Mark Aikida in Calgary. Hi, Bob. Love your work. Looking forward to your thoughts. There are now two instances when Brad Marchant has gotten into the intimate space of Leo Komarov, getting a little closer than he may want to. It's uh, That, by the way, is in quotes because that's what Marchant said, a little closer than he may want to. It seems that Komarov is uncomfortable with male intimacy, which is another issue entirely. But does this bridge on sexual harassment on the rink? What is your stance of the You Can Play project? Will there someday be a Marchant rule like there is an Avery rule? A Marchant rule would be no kissing. Hope this furthers the conversation. It's interesting because over the course of the season, when the first time when, when Marchant puckered up and, and gave Komarov a little kiss earlier in the season, somebody asked me that question. And I don't know whether the question ended up on the Bobcast or not. I don't recall. But in any case... Um, it's an interesting discussion point because on one level, it's kind of the silly, trivial, stupid stuff that happens in hockey and that people kind of think is funny and, and maybe on one level it is. But to Mark's point, um, I got to be honest, when, when Marchant nuzzled up to Komarov's neck in the playoff game and I don't know whether he licked him or not that, you know, there was talk that that's what he did. It was hard to tell exactly what was happening. Um, I just looked at it and I thought, come on, enough already. You know, you had your fun and now you're going a step further. And I understand, you have to understand, Marchant, what he's doing is he's just doing anything to try and get a reaction from Komarov to throw him off his game. And Komarov's response was to literally do nothing just basically stare there with a blank look on his face and not respond, which I'm sure he thinks is a good way to handle things when Brad Marchant does stuff to you. Um, in any case, what I would like to see, and, and I don't believe this actually happened after the, the playoff incident, I would, like, I would have liked to have seen for NHL player safety, because I do believe they're actually in charge of this, to say to the Bruins, hey, tell Marchant to knock it off, because if he doesn't, we're going to fine him the next time or potentially suspend him. Or maybe I, if I were the NHL, I would simply instruct the referees to use the tools that are in their tool bag. And that is um, if you see somebody doing something that you know is to incite an opponent for a reaction, you can right then go to a 10-minute misconduct. And that, that would be a good way to handle it. So if Brad Marchant wants to get up close and personal with Leo Komarov or anybody else, um, the referee should just say, hey, Brad, go to the box, cool your jets for 10 minutes. And that would get the point across. So, I mean, I don't know that we need to have a larger discussion of sexual harassment or you can play or any of that stuff as much as we have to just look at this as Brad Marchand is trying to get under the skin of Leo Komarov. He's trying to do it in this particular fashion. And even though it hasn't worked with Komarov, um, the referees should not and the league should not tolerate it. And there should be a 10-minute misconduct or, and this would be the real killer, a two-minute minor penalty for unsportsmanlike conduct if the referees see Marchant so obviously baiting Komarov for a reaction. And that'll, that'll end it. And, you know, apropos of nothing, Marchant's a fantastic hockey player, one of the most clutch players in the National Hockey League. But and I understand his I understand his shtick as it relates to agitating and uh, annoying people, but um, enough's enough. Next up, we have a rather longer, complicated question where Zach Johnson from Fort Worth, Texas, goes to a lot of trouble to throw out a hypothetical. I'm not sure John Tortorella would answer this question on the quiz. I don't know that it would fit with Puffy's hypotheticals on James Duthie's Rubber Boot podcast. But since Zach took so much time and effort, I'm going to uh, I'm going to indulge him a little bit here and then talk about the uh, the greater issue at large. Hey, Bob, big fan of the Bobcast and all the hard work you do. I've heard rumblings around the hockey world, mostly by fans, that a Mark Stone offer sheet could possibly occur this season. I know, I know. We get the same talk every year about what coming RFAs will be offer sheeted and then we're left out to dry by the GMs. But there is one team that actually has a lot to gain from presenting an offer sheet to Mark Stone. 
that would be the Colorado Avalanche. Hear me out on this one. It's essentially a perfect storm of outcomes for the Avs. First off, this is all predicated on whether or not Ottawa defers the first-round pick from the Duchesne deal to the 2019 draft. If that is the case, then this would be the time to present the offer sheet. Colorado presents an offer of $39 million over five years for an AAV of $7.8 million. As we, all know, as we all know, Eugene Melnick is looking to cut expenditures and possibly even player salaries. So it would be wise for Joe Sackick to offer as high a contract as relatively possible so as to force Melnick and Pierre Dorian's hand. The key is to load up salary with as much signing bonus as possible so Melnick would have to cut a multi-million dollar check in early July every year for the next five years. Does Melnick want to pay this, especially when it doesn't look like the Senator's revenue is going to increase anytime soon? My gut says no. Now, assuming Stone signs the offer sheet and the Senators don't match, here comes the fun part. With the $7.8 million AAV, the draft pick compensation will be a first-round pick, a second-round pick, and a third-round pick. Seems like a lot to give up, right? Not necessarily. Refer back to Ottawa deferring the first-round pick to the 2019 draft. If they do defer, Colorado and Ottawa basically would be swapping first and third-round picks, and without Mark Stone, Ottawa could be short their best forward, causing them to seemingly fall down the standings even further and possibly land Colorado a top 10 or dare I say a top 3 lottery pick. The third round pick, which also came from the Duchesne deal, would also move up as well for Colorado. So to wrap this up, Colorado would be gaining a first-line elite two-way forward, essentially in exchange for a second-round pick, plus higher, and first, plus higher first and third-round picks than they had. Of course, all this depends on Joe Sackick breaking the mold of the old boys club and actually submitting the offer sheet, in addition to Ottawa deferring the first-round pick and not matching said offer sheet. So I'm not exactly betting the farm on this happening. Neither am I, but I'll go more than that in a minute. Uh, Stone may also be looking for a longer contract, and that would drive up the required draft pick compensation. Now, as a fan of the Dallas Stars, seeing an interdivision rival improve by adding Mark Stone to the roster would be disheartening for my own team. But as a hockey fan, I really want to see this happen just for the mass chaos it would create. Anyway, thanks for taking the time to read this. Let me know your thoughts and comments on the situation. Thanks, Zach Johnson, Fort Worth, Texas. Okay, Zach, I think you're right. I think you're dreaming in Technicolor. I don't think Ottawa is going to defer. Um, if somebody was going to offer sheet Mark Stone, I don't think it would be the Colorado Avalanche. Like the Senators, the Avalanche view themselves as a budget team, not one that throws a lot of money around um, on offer sheets. Okay, that's that. Okay, but let's talk a little bit um, about this. Um, Mark Stone, by the way, is uh, has played six years in the National Hockey League. Um, when you play your seventh full season in the NHL, in other words, at the end of next season, Mark Stone is an unrestricted free agent. Now, right now, he's a restricted free agent, but he also has salary arbitration rights. I would think, for the most part, He's got a pretty good salary arbitration case, um, most of his statistics. Now, there are some that don't work necessarily in his favor. Um, the, games, the, the, the games played or the ones that he missed because of injury um, would be an issue. The fact that the team didn't have any success this season also is a consideration. But a lot of the offensive categories and minutes played and a lot of the other numbers that you would crunch in arbitration would definitely come out very much in Mark Stone's favor for a rather substantial contract. Now, keep in mind, if Mark Stone did go to salary arbitration, he can choose a one-year award, um, and that would get him to free agency. Um, now, the, the Sens obviously have a basic interest here, and that is they want to get a long-term deal done with Mark Stone. And I would assume, until I would hear otherwise, Mark Stone is prepared to do a long-term deal with the Ottawa Senators as well. Um, to Zach's point on offer sheets, he's absolutely correct. They they almost never happen anymore. I think, I didn't even look this up, but I'm just guessing here. I want to say the last offer sheet was 2013 involving uh, Ryan O'Reilly when the Calgary Flames offer sheeted him. Um, so Colorado... Uh, 
was probably the last one to be potentially victimized um, by that. But uh, in any case, um, I don't anticipate we're suddenly going to see a rash of offer sheets this off season. I know there's been lots of talk that maybe um, that the, the, the culture amongst general managers in the league is going to change and we will start to see more offer sheets put me into the I'll believe it when I see it category on that front. Now, really hypothetically speaking, like way out there, crazy talk. If you were going to offer sheet Mark Stone, the I think the way you would go about it, and I think really for anybody who wants to do an offer sheet, assuming that they ever get done again, the, the, the key or the, the, the way to go about it would be to make it a one-year offer and at an extraordinary sum of money, most of it in signing bonus. Um, that's the type of deal that might complicate things for the, um, the team, the, in this case, the Ottawa Senators, if we're hypothetically speaking about putting an offer sheet in on Mark Stone. Now, you can say, why would you do a one-year offer? That makes no sense. Well, the obvious implication is that there's shenanigans going on. And those shenanigans would be that the team that offer sheets Mark Stone to a one-year $10 million deal or one-year $8 million deal or one-year $7.5 million deal with most of it in signing bonus um, would be that they would have a a long-term deal cut in their back pocket and that... um, if uh, if if Ottawa doesn't match, uh, then Mark Stone would do the one-year deal with the team he signs the offer sheet with, and then as soon as that year is up and his unrestricted free agency hits, wow, there you go. Look at that. He agreed to a new long-term contract um, with that team. Funny how that works. Um, but the, the key there would be is the pressure point on a one-year offer sheet is that if you give a one-year offer sheet to a player who's one year away from unrestricted free agency, and this is the key, uh, if Ottawa were to match that one-year offer sheet, they would not be able to trade Mark Stone at the trade deadline because when you match the offer sheet, you can't trade the player for a year. So that would be completely, totally handcuffing uh, the team. That would be, you know, obviously financial duress of of putting in such a significant amount of money over the period of one year and knowing that you're losing the player at the end of the year to free agency. So anyways, that's the the crazy uh, Bobby's hypothetical on how you would offer sheet Mark Stone. But as I said, I believe the Sens expect and, and want to get Mark Stone signed to a deal and that Stone would be good with that in Ottawa. But there's a lot of moving parts and salary arbitration and a one-year award could potentially be part of them. So it's certainly an idea, uh, certainly a, uh, an area to keep an eye on. Another contract-oriented question, this one from Anthony in Hamilton. Hello, Bob. Given that the playoff race for the Leafs is much more relaxing this year, 99% of my focus on this season is already on the playoff performance of this Leaf team, and the other 1% is on the James Van Riemsdyk saga coming on July 1st. Now, I should point out that Anthony's letter came in on April the 4th. That was before the playoffs began. And, of course, I need to duly note that uh, on this particular Friday, the Leafs trail the Boston Bruins 3-1 and now need to win three consecutive games against Boston, two of them in Boston. Um, so that focus on the playoff season performance for Anthony might be a little bit off right now. In any case, back to his letter. Performing at just the right time, scoring a career best in goals in a contract year, has to have James Van Riemsdyk's agent dreaming about a life-changing deal for their client. Insiders such as yourself have reported that a $7 million a year times seven-year contract is well within JVR's reach. I should correct that for Anthony. Um, I said probably he'll get six years at six-plus, but anyways, back to his question. Anyway, Bob, my question to you is, do you think the Leafs will or even should attempt to be in the JVR sweepstakes come July 1st? Given the emergence of players like Andreas Janssen and Kasperi Kapanen this season, and also the possibility of Carl Grundstrom, not to mention the contracts of Matthews, Marner, and Nylander still needing to be signed, is it even worth attempting to sign JVR to a realistic deal? 
I absolutely love what he gives this team in terms of a net front presence, but I still get hesitant when I think of previous big money deals that were signed to similar age players such as Louis Erickson and Milan Lucic. Thank you for your time. Looking forward to your coverage of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Anthony from Hamilton. Okay, Anthony, um, Leaf playoff performance aside, and uh, I feel I feel for you, Leaf fans. Um, yeah, Van Riemsdyk, as I said, I think on market he's going to get the six times six plus. Um, that's what he's likely to get. Now, I can say this. I think James Van Riemsdyk really likes a lot of things about playing on the Toronto Maple Leafs. I think he really likes it here, and there's a big part of him that would like to stay. Um, but I also think there's part of James Van Riemsdyk that looks at his minutes and his role on the team and the fact that he's probably never going to get favored player status with head coach Mike Babcock and that those might be reasons why he would look fondly on maybe getting a fresh start somewhere else. So he's got his reasons to stay. He's got his reasons to go. Um, as far as Toronto goes, the reality is, and I've said this multiple times, when they signed Patrick Marlowe to that three-year deal at over $6 million a year, I said, there goes James Van Riemsdyk's money. Um, and Anthony's point is correct, that with the, the Nylander contract having to be done this summer, with Marner and Matthews eligible to be done, this summer, but maybe still not to be done for another year. At some, the, the, the Leafs do not simply have the ability to give James Van Riemsdyk a six-year contract at over $6 million a year. And he's been on an affordable deal for a while, so I don't think the notion of taking a, a significant hometown discount to play third-line minutes for Mike Babcock is in the cards. Um, now, getting back to crazy hypotheticals, I, I'm not suggesting that the Leafs would do this, and I'm not suggesting that Van Riemsdyk would do this, but I am suggesting that it might be an intriguing notion for both of them to consider, assuming there's interest in either or both sides staying together beyond this season. And because the Leafs are down 3-1 in their series, and if by the time you're listening to this, the Leafs have been eliminated in the first round of the playoffs, it may well be that James Van Riemsdyk's more eager to move on and the Leafs would be more eager and willing to let him move on than they might have been in the flush of late in the regular season when he was having his career offensive year. Anyways, the hypothetical that I'm talking about is the Leafs can afford to sign James Van Riemsdyk to a one-year contract. If JVR were really motivated to be here, he might consider staying in Toronto on a one-year deal at what would be an overpayment of market value. That is to suggest it would probably have to start with a seven, between seven and eight million. Would the Leafs, when they've got the cap room next year, entertain the notion to pay JVR seven plus million on a one-year deal? I'm guessing probably not, but I'm guessing it's something that he might consider if he really, really, really wanted to come back and lots of moving parts there. Otherwise, I think he's going to market, and uh, uh, that's the reality. And uh, just the cost of doing business when you've got guys coming out of their entry level. And for the Leafs, Andreas Janssen, Grundstrom, Kapanen, they all expect to have much bigger roles in the uh, years to come for the Toronto Maple Leafs. I have a couple of questions about the Vegas Golden Knights here. Uh, the first one from Josh in Lake Moore, Illinois. Hey, Bob, with the success the Vegas Golden Knights have had this year, do you think it will significantly impact the rules of any expansion drafts moving forward? I would think any ownership group looking to purchase an expansion franchise in the near future would expect a similar format that Vegas was dealt. However, I can see dissent coming from the other 30 NHL GMs especially those who have been basement dwellers for some time who probably don't appreciate the fact that an expansion team can win their division in year one while other franchises have struggled just to ice a competitive team from year to year. Your thoughts? That from Josh in Lake Moore, Illinois. Um, also, a very similar question. Do, do, do. This is from Craig S. in Roberts Creek, British Columbia. Hi, Bob. Love the podcast. Thanks for doing it. I was wondering if you have any insight into how the NHL GMs or other management feel about how the expansion draft was structured, given Vegas' historic success this year. 
Do they feel like their teams were taken advantage of by the format? Or do they just recognize it as great strategy and coaching by the Vegas team? It will be interesting to see if the same format is kept for Seattle's expansion draft or if other teams will try to hold back their talent a little more. Keep on keeping on from Craig S. in Roberts Creek. Okay, first thing, Craig, um, Seattle's going to get exactly the same deal that Vegas got, and uh, there's no doubt about that, so it's not going to be a worse deal. Um, I don't imagine it will be a better deal. I think it's going to be the same deal. Now, as for how the general managers viewed the expansion draft at the time Vegas was coming in, I think one of the problems that GMs ran into is that they didn't look at it as an exercise that could potentially harm them as much as they thought, how can I flip this and turn it to my advantage? How can I make this a positive experience instead of a losing experience? And I think going in with that mindset actually ended up making it lose-lose. So obviously what Vegas had was the ability to take on bad contracts. And lots of teams that had financial pressures, be it dollar pressures or be it cap pressure, um, they thought, this is a great opportunity for me. I'm going to be able to make a soft deal here to get Vegas to take my money problems and wash my hands of these money problems, which is going to free me up to do all sorts of really good things that's going to make my team better. And, um, And that's what they did. And I think a lot of the deals that Vegas did ended up being lopsided in their favor because these teams were so highly motivated to do these side deals to get the financial freedom that they they thought was so important. And I'm not saying that financial freedom wasn't important, but I think some of the best deals Vegas made um, were deals where the the, the team was motivated to, to lose a contract. So... Um, I don't know that I think the GMs when Seattle comes around to the expansion draft, I think the GMs are going to look very carefully at the mistakes that were made in this in the Vegas expansion draft and maybe they're not there are not going to be as many side deals. Now, there might be less protection problems. Maybe not though. Um because I say the rules will be generally the same, so there will be teams that have protection problems. And and let's let's be honest. In addition to just wanting to free up um, money and and get rid of bad contracts, a lot of these teams were making decisions that you know they had an exposure problem. So we've got player A exposed, we've got player B exposed. Um, we don't want player A taken, so we'll give you a little something something if you take player B from us. And teams also got into trouble on that one where they made subjective decisions where maybe they overvalued player A and played a bigger price than they should have to get them to take player B. In any case, I think a lot of the GMs just tried to get a little too cute in their dealings with Vegas. Now, I mentioned the no-move clauses. Part of the reason teams had exposure problems was because they had to protect players with no-move clauses. Now, with the Seattle expansion draft happening uh, down the road and a number of years between the Vegas expansion draft and the Seattle expansion draft, I'm wondering if just by attrition we've lost a lot of no-move clauses in the league. And teams have not been as eager to give out no-move clauses recently for this very reason. So I'll be curious to see if teams are jammed up as badly as they were for the Vegas expansion draft, if they'll be jammed up as badly for the Seattle expansion draft. I suspect not, but there's still going to be opportunity and pressure points there. I don't think there's any question about that. In honor of the Vegas Golden Knights, by the way, being the first team to advance to the second round, and they now have their matchup, of course, with the San Jose Sharks, let's uh, go to a third question on Vegas. Uh, Hi, Bob. First, let me say thank you for the many hours of the Bobcast that I've listened to over the past couple of years. I'm 32 years old, run a busy real estate law firm in Las Vegas, and I'm getting married in July. In other words, I have virtually no time to myself most days. However, on a Friday or a Saturday night, after my future wife falls asleep, 
I love to sneak down to the living room, make myself a snack, rev up the latest podcast, and play two or three hours of video games. It's one of the best parts of my week. Just don't tell my future wife. She's not listening. Anyway, I grew up loving the Canucks, which has been a difficult existence as a hockey fan. I hear you. However, when the Golden Knights were announced, I was one of many who immediately bought season tickets. While I've had to sell or give away about a third of the tickets this year, following the Knights has been extremely rewarding. No shit. I had expected to spend most of the season waiting for the draft lottery, but lo and behold, we've just locked up a playoff spot. You don't even know the half of it, buddy. You're already in the second round. Last year at this time, I couldn't find a bar in the suburbs that would even put on an NHL game. Now every bar is packed with people wearing gray, gold. While most of us are trying not to focus on the events of October 1, 2017 at our season opener, this team helped to bring the community together in a way that I've never seen before. My question for you is this. Do you think that the Knights are likely to stay this good for at least a few years? More than half of the players on this team are having career years, but on the other hand, most have never had this kind of opportunity. Not the least of which is William Carlson, who has nearly tripled his career goal totals in just one season. George McPhee seems to have hit his first entry draft out of the park, with Cody Glass and Nick Suzuki looking like they could be ready next year, and Eric Brandstrom, Nick Haig, Stefan Alvarez, and Ben Jones all looking like they could be players in the next few years. I would also guess that Vegas would be an attractive free agent destination because we have no state income tax, good winter weather, a great arena atmosphere, and a good team on the ice. I'd love to know your thoughts on Vegas and what it will take for them to stay competitive long-term. Thanks for being great. That from Mike in Las Vegas. Well, you know what, Mike? It's been a remarkable year. It's been the number one story. It dominated the regular season. It's now dominating the playoffs. And the funny thing is, I mean, when when Bill Foley, the owner of the team, got it, um, you know, he made the famous prediction, playoffs in three years, Stanley Cup in six. And most of us are looking at him going, yeah, okay, buddy, playoffs in three years, my ass. And playoffs in one year, um, Cup this year, um, could have been his quote. It, and, it, and it is interesting because they did have a great draft last year. Um, Cody Glass, Suzuki, Brandstrom, Haig, uh, they've all had tremendous, uh, tremendous years. And uh, the future looks very bright in terms of the players that are coming. Um, and to have three picks in the top 15, Glass was sixth overall, I think, Suzuki 13th, Brandstrom 15th. Um, in, in any case, now they don't have a first and a third round pick this year. They gave them up as, I believe, part of the Thomas Tatar deal with Detroit. And when Tatar was healthy, scratched in one of those games against the Kings, a lot of people kind of said, oh, you know, they gave a pretty significant price to Detroit for a player that got scratched in a game against the Kings in the first round. That said, a um, couple of things on that. Um, in 2019, they've got their own first round picks still. They've got two second round picks and three third round picks. So they are loaded with draft pick uh, currency in the 2019 draft. And as for Tatar, um, you know, they haven't signed David Perron to a contract extension yet. They haven't signed James Neal to an extension. Um, I'm not sure that they're necessarily going to be able to sign Neal. I wouldn't rule it out, but I wouldn't count on it either. So in some ways, the Tatar acquisition acts as insurance against potential players they could lose to free agency. Um, what I also know about the, the National Hockey League circa 2018 is that teams get good in a hurry and they get bad in a hurry from year to year. And I think the Vegas is the absolute living embodiment of get good in a hurry. Nobody's gotten this good in such a hurry as as the expansion Vegas Golden Knights. It's just sublime what's happened. Um, but for the same reasons, I think you've got to be careful in automatically assuming, oh, well, if they were great this year, it means they'll be great next year. Listen, I don't think they're a house of cards. I don't think that they're suddenly going to fall apart next season. But you know what? I also thought the Edmonton Oilers, a year ago right now, I thought the Edmonton Oilers were a really good hockey team. And 
106 points and getting to the second round of the playoffs against Anaheim. And I thought they'd be a real good team this year, and they missed the playoffs. And, you know, Colorado wasn't supposed to be very good um, this year, and they made the playoffs, and, and they've handled themselves reasonably well, even though they're down 3-1 to Nashville in the first round of the playoffs. By the way, they're just running out of goalies, Varlamov, uh, Bernier, um, what have you. Anyways, the, the, the point is that there's never anything guaranteed at the start of the season. But I think Vegas, it's not, it's not a mirage. Um, they're not suddenly going to be revert to what we perceive to be the old traditional expansion team that's really bad for five or six years. And I would say this, and we saw it at the trade deadline. George McPhee was working the phones trying to get Eric Carlson out of Ottawa. It didn't happen, but he was trying. When they get the free agency this year, if John Tavares gets to free agency, um, I'd be very surprised if if uh, Vegas doesn't take a hard run at John Tavares. I think George McPhee and his group in Vegas recognizes that they have a very competitive hockey team that has a chance to contend, and they're going to treat themselves. They're no longer an expansion team. Throw the expansion label out the window. Um, that'll be the, the rule for next season. They're just a they're just a real good National Hockey League team, and I and there's lots of real good teams that sometimes miss the playoffs. So you can't absolutely 100%. No matter what success they enjoy this regular season, no matter what success they may yet enjoy in the playoffs, there's not a 100% guarantee that the Vegas Golden Knights will make the playoffs next season. But you know what? There's uh they're a good hockey team, and and George Mufi's going to treat them like a good hockey team. And the expansion mindset is long gone, and uh, so is the handle. So um, onward and upward in Vegas. Well, we had three Vegas questions. Um, let's have a consolation question for the poor Los Angeles Kings fans who are on the sidelines now. This one comes from Andy in Tavistock, which I assume is Tavistock, Ontario. Hey, Bob, love listening to the pod while milking on Saturday mornings. I'm going to assume that when he says milking that um, he's on a farm. I hope so. Anyways, um, Andy's question is, why did Gabe Velarde fall so far to the L.A. Kings in the draft? As a Kings fan, it's exciting to see him shoot out the lights in junior. And do you think he'll be playing with Los Angeles Kings next year? couple of good questions there, Andy. I can't help you with the milking, but I can um, try to help you with the questions. Uh, take your second question first. Do I think he'll be playing with the Kings next year? Short answer is yes. Now, he's got to go to camp. He's got to earn it, yada, yada, yada. But that's the plan. Uh, the plan in L.A. is they want to continue to introduce more good young players into their lineup. We obviously saw that creating offense was an absolute challenge for them against the Vegas Golden Knights. And you don't want to put too much pressure on a kid who's still eligible for junior hockey next season. But um, he's got some offensive skills. And uh, I think the plan is, as long as he has a good camp, he's likely to be on the Kings roster to start next season. Now, as for why he fell so far in the draft, well, part of it um, had to do with the fact that um, he did have some injury issues over the course of last season in his draft year. And he also had some skating issues. His foot speed, he's not the, he's not the quickest guy. Now, he's a big guy. He's 6'3", over 200 pounds. Um, but he um, doesn't move as fast as some. And in today's game, that's a bit of a red flag for people. So um, I wouldn't say it's a red flag for him. It was more of a, bit, a little bit of a cautionary flag. And there were teams, I think, that, that had Velarde in their top five in last year's draft. Um, and I think the Kings might have been one of them, to be honest with you, that they, they thought that highly of him. Um, but in any case, um, he slipped to number 11 overall. Uh, if you go back to that draft, he sure won, Nolan Patrick two, Heskinen to Dallas at three, Kale McCarr to Colorado at four, Elias Pedersen to Vancouver at five, Cody Glass to Vancouver at six, Leah Anderson to the Rangers at seven, Casey Middlestadt to Buffalo at eight, Michael Rasmussen to Detroit at nine, and Owen Tippett to Florida at ten. Now, it, this is one of those situations where I don't think any of those are terrible picks or even bad picks, um, and time will tell um, as to the, the relative value of all these players. 
But this is one of those cases where I think it's just all it takes for a player to so-called drop or fall down in the draft is for the teams picking to like just one player better than Gabe Velarde. And I think that was the case for a lot of these teams. And so I don't think he was flawed by any stretch, but the skating was certainly an issue. Now, um, it's worth pointing out, Gabe Velarde is, um, is, is playing outstanding hockey uh, since he's come back to, to, to junior. Now, he was traded from the Windsor Spitfires to the Kingston Frontenacs um, before the OHL trade deadline in uh, December, January there. And the reason he was traded um, with a year left on his deal was twofold. One, because Windsor was offloading basically all their veteran talent and, and rebooting things. And number two, because the Kings basically told the Windsor Spitfires, all things being equal, Velarde's not playing in the OHL as a 19-year-old. And I think Kingston knew that when they made the acquisition of the player. But um, he's, he's been fantastic, especially in the playoffs. 11 goals, 20 points um, in 12 games for the Kingston Frontenacs, who last I checked were down one nothing in their Eastern Conference final against the Hamilton Bulldogs. I love Velarde as a player. Um, I think he's got elite hockey sense, and he's got above-average skill and playmaking and scoring ability. And uh, I think he's got to stay healthy. That was obviously had a back issue that in an off-season procedure that caused him to miss the first half of the OHL season. Um, but I think he's continuing to work on his skating, and I think he's going to get by. Now, when he was drafted by the Kings in Windsor, he was playing the wing, and there was all sorts of debate at the draft. And again, this was another reason why he might have fallen. Um, that maybe he projects more as a winger than a center. I can tell you this, the LA Kings project him as a center. Um, Anze Kopitar light, if you will. And um, I think while he may need a little seasoning and start on the wing, um, the LA Kings view him very much as a center and and a big time piece of their future. And that brings us to our final question of this edition of the Bobcast. We'll try to keep it a little bit light here. Um, This one's from Alex, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Actually, I'm going to try and pronounce his last name. It's either Sutsos or Sautsos. In any case, Alex, here's your question. Hey, Bob, huge fan of the podcast and all the work you do. I'm a junkie for all things hockey and love both of your books, especially Hockey Dad, which reminded me a lot of my experiences going through minor hockey roughly around the same time as your son, Mike. My question this week is non-hockey related, as I felt you could use the break from the subject. I'm planning my best friend's bachelor party, and we're thinking of renting a cottage in Muskoka for a weekend in July. Do you have any recommendations as to which areas are the best? Also, do you have any recommendations for activities, i.e. places we could go to rent boats or sea dues or go fishing or even do axe throwing? Axe throwing, my goodness, I've never thought of doing axe throwing. Axe throwing at a bachelor party. Hmm, what could go wrong? Anyways, Alex writes, any feedback would be helpful. Thanks and keep up the great work. Um, P.S. My dad and I were begrudging fans for a while because my dad thought your article in Toronto Star in the 93 Conference Finals motivated Wayne Gretzky to beat the Leafs in Game 6 and Game 7. It became tougher to hate you because of your great work. So now we just blame Kerry Fraser instead. Awesome. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Alex's dad. Yes, the piano and the backstory. Anyways, I'm not a, a, a an expert on Muskoka by any means, but I do like to um, occasionally visit. We go to my wife and I, Cindy. We go to Port Carling for the day, oftentimes, and uh, spend some times there. There's a place called uh, Grand Electric a really good sort of gourmet uh, taco place um, right there in uh, in Port Carling, right on the water. It's fantastic. Um, I don't really know about renting a cottage on any of the, the Muskoka lakes, of course, Rosso, Joseph, or Lake Muskoka. Um, but I do know, and I don't know if it's still uh, the case, but I'm looking at a 2000, and what year was it? Hold on one second here. Let me look. Uh, one second here. Yes. May 17th, 2016, uh, the Toronto Star wrote a story about Wendell Clark's Muskoka Cottage being offered up on Airbnb with the proceeds um, from any of those rentals 
going to, I believe it was a charity, the Heart and Stroke Foundation. The cottage boasts 10 bedrooms plus 8 bathrooms as well as 4 guest cottages. And it's um, it's not cheap. I believe it was going for $5,000 a night, a minimum two-night. Um, uh, yeah, two-night, T-W-O night. Um, uh, rental. So I don't know, Alex, if you have 10000 bucks to spend on a bachelor party. But I looked at the pictures online and uh, on Airbnb. And as I said, I don't know if Wendell's still doing this or not. But that looked pretty cool. So I don't know. There's a hockey-themed uh, concept. And uh, whether or not uh, you could pull that off, I'm not sure. But uh, Port Carlin's a cool town. Um, don't know about the axe throwing. But uh, in any case, good luck to you. Good luck to your friend who's getting married. Um, tell your dad thanks for uh, the forgiveness on the piano on the back Gretzky thing. And uh, that's basically it. I'm hoping the playoff fever, the playoff buzz will really pick up. But even if it doesn't, uh, I mean, go make your own fun. Go to Tankathon. Here, come on, one more time. Simulate that lottery. Hold on, here we go. Hey, Ottawa got the first pick, Buffalo the second. And, oh boy, New York Islanders got the third pick. Sorry, Calgary Flames fan. <laughs> Anyways, um, have fun with the, uh, the draft lottery. Have fun with uh, playing Tankathon until such time that the draft lottery occurs. And uh, on a serious note, uh, go out, try to make a difference. And uh, I don't know, think about it. Maybe go sign up to be an organ donor. Take care. All the best. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's At TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.